following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. So we finish our series in First Peter today, and I want to tell you what to expect for the next couple of months. As you know, the next two weeks are Global Focus, where we will plan on hearing from Ashvin and looking at what God is doing in the world. So be praying even now for God to move, because every year there have been some who've been felt, who, who felt convicted by God to go to the nations. And then the following three weeks, we'll have a number of our elders preach on the book of Habakkuk, which is an amazing book on the goodness of God in the midst of a world of chaos. And so I'm so looking forward to that. And then we have the four weeks of Advent, our January focus on the word and prayer, sanctity of life and ethnic harmony. And then we'll begin a new series in the book of Acts that will take us all the way to summer. So would you join me now as we ask Lord for help and go to him in prayer? Heavenly Father, we're asking that you would pour out your lavish grace on us this morning through your word so that we would be nourished and strengthened and built up as your people. Help us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and all of our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Do this for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we come to the end of our series in 1 Peter, what is the note that Peter wants to strike here in these final words? When we write letters or emails, the last couple of lines really communicate what we want other people to think or to feel. Is there a sense of urgency? Is there a sense of affection to our letter? And so what is it that Peter ends with? Well, this final note that Peter rings is one of grace. His entire letter has been a letter of hope and of salvation. And though he's written a lot about suffering and perseverance, the note that he wants to leave them with, what he wants them to remember, the thing that he wants them to have ringing in their ears, to be the taste on their tongue, is that of God's grace. Our main point this morning is, very simply, stand firm in the true grace of God. We see that right in verse 12, and that's been the theme, the broad theme or melodic line of the entire book itself. Stand firm in the true grace of God. Of God. He's reminding them here in these last closing words of key themes that he wants them to remember so that they would endure and persevere until the very end. So we want to look at three things this morning. In verses 10 and 11, we see a promise that God will bring them all the way home, will bring us all the way home. In verse 12, we see an exhortation to stand firm in the true grace of God. And then we get in verse 13 and 14, closing words to greet one another in love. So look with me again now at verses 10 and 11. He says, And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself strengthen, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever 
and ever. So what does Peter want us to know here in these final words? He wants us to know that God's glorious grace is what will bring us all the way until the very end. He gives us a promise of what God is going to do. He just exhorted believers to resist the devil, to be sober-minded and watchful. But here in the next verse, he says, and God is going to do it. He himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So why is this significant? Because in some circles of Christianity, you could look at the book of 1 Peter and you could put the wrong accent or the wrong tone on the preaching of the book. You could kind of leave everything precarious and uncertain and hanging in the balance. Like, you, you got to endure suffering, and if you don't, you, you might be lost. Everything's precarious. It's 50-50. Will you perver- persevere or will you not? And yet what Peter has tried to emphasize is yes, you must stand firm. Yes, you need to endure. Yes, you need to cleave to Christ. But mainly by looking to and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not mainly about what you do, but about what God is doing in and through Christ to preserve you until the very end. Receive the grace of God. This is how you go about enduring in the Christian life. Not mainly go and do, but believe, trust, receive, and cleave to Jesus. Now, he says, after you have suffered a little while. Why does he say a little while? This is the same phrase that's used in chapter 1, verse 6. Of after you've suffered a little while, fiery trials. So Peter's answering an unstated, implicit question that's coming from his readers. And what they want to know is how long is it going to take, Peter? When is the suffering going to end? If God is powerful, if he has the mighty hand, when's the suffering going to stop? When's that hand coming down on Nero to flatten him so that we stop suffering? What they want is a specific timeline or a timetable. When will the suffering and persecution end? And Peter doesn't say, he doesn't give them a timeline. He doesn't tell them when, but he tells them what will ultimately happen. Suffering will be for a little while, but it will pale in comparison with the eternal weight of glory that God is preparing for you. If our lives here on earth, maybe 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years. You can think of it as 100 feet of rope. Our lives here on earth are like that first six inches, signified by those 80 or 90 years of life. And then the next foot and a half is the first thousand years that we will be with Jesus. And then the next foot and a half. And then the next 99.5 you know, feet of rope is about us being with Jesus forever, in his presence forever. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That's what? Beyond all comparison. So the suffering that you experience right now, here in this life, doesn't even compare with the eternal glory that you will have in Jesus Christ. 
So what Peter's been trying to do throughout this book is he wants us to back up. I've heard sometimes that if you're in a really stressful situation where you have to focus on something really intently, you actually begin to lose some of your peripheral vision because you're so focused on that particular dangerous or specific thing that's in front of you. And what Peter wants us to do is he says, press pause for a moment and back up and and see this from the background. See, see your situation and what you're facing, not in the heat of it. And then rise up to about a thousand feet from kind of a bird's eye view of your situation and see that it's not as severe as you, it feels right now. And, and then back up to see it from 10,000 feet and then 50,000 feet. He wants us to have an eternal perspective as we take in maligning and slander and suffering and persecution or whatever else you're experiencing. Back up and see it from a global perspective, from an eternal perspective. This suffering, this momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. It's like when you're riding, you get in an airplane and it could be gray and stormy and rainy and then you lift off and then you enter into the clouds and then you get above the clouds. And you're like, oh, the sun is still shining. I just couldn't see it from my vantage point. That's what Peter wants his readers to see. Now, he specifically tells us two things about the promise maker. He says, the God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. And then he gives us the promise itself that he's going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. So what does it mean that God is the God of all grace? He's just said in verse 5 that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so when he says God's going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, how will he go about doing that? Well, he's going to lavish his grace upon his children. He gives us everything that we need in this life in order to endure. Have you ever felt like, oh, things around me are so difficult, so hard right now. I, I, I desperately need God's grace. And, and, and is God going to give it? Well, he does. He lavishes it upon us. Spurgeon, pastor says, quickening grace. We get quickening grace, convincing grace, pardoning grace, believing grace, sustaining grace. If he is the God, not of one grace or of two graces, but of all graces, and if in him there is stored up an infinite, boundless, limitless supply, how can we ask too much? The point that he's making is that God is the God of all grace, and he gives that grace to his children so that we would be able to endure. That's the note that Peter wants to strike here at the end. The second thing he says is that he's called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Here again, our election is front and center. You are elect exiles. You've been called by God. Our glorification will surely come to pass. We will take hold of salvation. We will be exalted at the proper time. We will get our inheritance. So in telling us about the one who's going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us, he needs to set the stage. He's the one who possesses all the grace you could possibly ever need in order to persevere until the end. And he's the one 
who's going to make sure it happens because he's called you to his eternal glory and God has an effectual calling. Let me try to illustrate this with this uh, account. So I know a friend who, who just in the last couple of days sold his house. And there was two days in between when he moved out of his house and when the closing was to take place. And he lives in a slightly checkered part of town. And so he was afraid that someone would come and perhaps, you know, steal all of the copper throughout the house or open up a meth lab or or whatever it may be. And so what did he do? He slept in his empty house for those two days to make sure nothing happened to it. Because until the contract is signed... It's precarious. If something happens, someone could back away and walk away from the contract until everyone signs on the dotted line that money is exchanged, the keys are handed over, it's not finished. But that's not the way Peter writes about our salvation. That's not the way Peter talks about our eternal glory or our heavenly inheritance. The way that he writes is that it's as good as done. It's waiting for you right now. It has your name on it because God is the one who's called you to his eternal glory. The buyer in this case is God Almighty and he's not going to back out. Instead, he's going to give whatever it takes. He's going to lavish his grace upon his children to make sure that they will endure and persevere until the very end. He's called you to his eternal glory, which means he's going to see it through. It's not questionable and uncertain, but that you can take this to the bank. And now he gives the promise. He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. All four of these verbs overlap in meaning, and they all point to the main idea that God is going to bring to completion what he has began. So the note that Peter is striking here is one of grace. Yes, you need to heed these warnings. Yes, you need to heed these exhortations. But the thing that he wants to leave them with is that God is going to do this. After you've suffered a little while, the God who has lavish grace at his disposal for you, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's like Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will what? Bring it to completion in the day of Christ. Or later in Philippians where he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Do that work, but what? As God works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So yes, we have a part to play, but God is the one doing the work so that we would persevere. And who's the perfect example of that? Peter. Peter. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he denied Christ. And then, the Lord Jesus Christ, John 21, he confirms, restores, strengthens, and establishes Peter so that he would be a pillar in the early church. So if you walk away from this series this morning thinking, yes, suffering is coming. It's part of this life as a Christian. And what I need to do is muster up more strength, work harder, try harder in order to persevere. I think you'll have missed the point of this book. What Peter has been saying 
again and again is that God uses these warnings and exhortations so that we would remain faithful. They're not contradictory. He gives us these warnings and exhortations to be the means by which we persevere. This is a book that calls us to look at what God is doing in and through us. He's working through our present sufferings so that we will endure. And I think that's so important for us to hear this morning. That it's not mainly about me mustering up more energy and strength, even if I feel weak, but it's mainly about, Lord, I want to look to you. I want to keep my eyes on you. I want to set my hope on the glory that is to be revealed. I don't want to depart from what God is doing. Now, he ends with the word of doxology in verse 11. It says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Why does he do that? Because as God, God is the one who will bring us all the way home. He's going to finish what he completed. How do we respond? We respond in worship, in a doxology. But in particular, he highlights the word dominion. He gave a doxology actually early in chapter 4, verse 11, and he mentioned dominion and glory. Here he just mentions dominion. Why does he do that? Because he wants to highlight once again God's power. If this is the one who is going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, does he have the power to do it? Yes, he has all dominion in his hand. He's sovereign. He's the all-powerful God under his mighty hand. All other rival powers are under his feet. And that's why he highlights his dominion here, that God is sovereign. He never over-promises and under-delivers. So, why does Peter end on this note? What he wants us to feel is confidence and comfort. He wants us to feel confidence. He doesn't want us to say, wow, suffering's coming. I got to stand firm. I feel like I'm just flapping in the wind. I don't know if I can do it. No, no, no. Peter's saying, look, God is going to do it. So I want you to feel confident because the sovereign God with all the power at his disposal is the one who's going to keep you so that you will indeed persevere and endure until the end. And he wants to give us comfort because Peter's readers are are doubting and anxious and fearful. Suffering's on the horizon. Peter didn't say it's going to end. He just says it's going to pale in comparison with eternity. And so they're saying, is it going to get worse? And yet, Peter wants them to know the God of all grace is coming. He's here. He's with you. And so he gives them comfort. So that was the promise. Now we turn to Peter's final exhortation. Look with me at verse 12. Here we get an exhortation to stand firm in the true grace of God. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So first, Peter commends Silvanus, who's likely the one who carried and delivered this letter so that the people, maybe, maybe, maybe he's present there and, and so they'll show him hospitality and pay for his travel expenses and he can answer any questions that they might have. But he, he's showing that there's, that there's these other co-workers with him and we'll see more of that later. But then Peter explains the whole point of this entire letter. 
It's an exhortation and a declaration that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And so what's he referring to when this is the true grace of God? He's referring to the entire letter. Everything that he's written up to this point. This is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of how God saves. How you've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. How you've been born again to a living hope. How you've been born again by the imperishable seed. He's saying all of that. Everything, every word I've written. All of that is the true grace of God. So take that to heart. Believe in it. Hold on to it. Put it into practice. God in Christ is causing us to stand firm. And Peter highlights for us this true grace that we're to stand firm in. So we don't run from it. We don't shift from it. We don't hide from it. But we stand firm in it. And so I imagine that there are some unbelievers who are here this morning, those who are not yet trusting in Jesus. And we want to call you. In a world where there are very few sure footholds, where everything is like a shifting foundation, shifting sands, if you will, stand firm on the true grace of God. Jesus calls you to come and entrust yourself to him, to surrender, and that he will give you everlasting life, that there will be hope, that there will be more grace than you can possibly imagine as you entrust your soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are to stand firm on these words, the gospel of Christ, but we don't stand alone. Now look with me at verses 13 and 14 because he highlights for us that we don't stand alone, that we have companions and fellowship. Verse 13, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So first he highlights that she who is at Babylon sends greetings. So who's Peter talking about? He could be talking about an unnamed woman. But that would have been unlikely that all the believers in Asia Minor would have known who Peter was talking about. Some people think maybe he was talking about his wife who was at Babylon. Again, that would be unlikely because there's no other evidence for that as well. Some people think think that he's referencing the city of Babylon that we see show up in the Old Testament. But that would be a city that would currently be in ruins and there's no evidence that Peter ever traveled there. I think the fourth option is most likely that he's actually referring to the church in Rome. So the church is often referred to as a woman by various New Testament writers. Paul talking about the church as the bride of Christ. Or John writes in 2 John, he writes and he opens this letter, the elder to the elect lady and her children. He's talking about the church there. And so it'd be like if I said, our daughter Emmaus is doing well. Well, I don't have a daughter named Emmaus, so I'm not talking about one of my children, and I'm not talking about a literal girl named Emmaus, kind of an odd name for a little girl. Hopefully none of your daughters are named that. The the, the point that I would be making is our church plant in White Bear Lake, led by Tom Boyer, named Emmaus, they're doing well. So that's a little bit like what Peter's doing here. Now, there's more evidence that Peter was writing from Rome. And so the reason or the question that comes to mind then is, well, why does he say she who is at Babylon rather than the church in Rome? Well, I think 
The reason is this. First, Babylon is referred to in Revelation 16, 19, or 17, 5, or 18, 2, which references very likely Rome as well. But what Peter is doing is he's using the imagery of the church as the new people of God, the new Israel. So while Babylon was a great and wicked city in which all of God's people were being opposed by this great and wicked city. They were in exile. Now we have a people in Rome who are likewise in exile. So while Babylon was a center of power and wealth and violence and sensuality, Rome is now that similar power of wickedness. A center of power and wickedness opposing God's people. And so what Peter is trying to say is in the same way that God's people were in exile from Babylon, we're now in exile in this nation of Rome. And what you should know is that you're not alone. You're not alone in this. There's a church there that sends you greetings. The brotherhood throughout the world is suffering including the church in Rome. And then he sends greetings from Mark, who's also known as John Mark, the writer of John's or Mark's gospel. And he indicates not that he's his biological son, but his spiritual son, which reflects Peter's fatherly love for Mark. And so Peter is at an older age, and he sees in many ways what he's writing as being kind of some of his final instructions to the church. And then he says, greet one another with the kiss of love. This would have meant in those times, touching cheeks, not necessarily lips, and Christians are to allow their faith in God to overflow into expressions of love for one another. So what's the point there? I think what Peter's getting at because he's highlighted it throughout the book. Be humble towards one another. Love one another earnestly. Show hospitality without grumbling. Use your gifts to serve one another. What he's trying to say is that as you seek to endure, know that God is the one who's going to bring you all the way home. And as you stand firm, realize that you do not stand alone. You have brothers and sisters around you that you lock arms with. The church In Rome, Mark, Silvanus, others, greet one another with affection because they stand with you so that you will endure until the very end. Look around to the neighbor next to you. I mean it. Look around to the neighbor next to you. Those are the people that God has given you because you're united in Christ, united by the greatest truths in all of the world so that we would endure together in faith. So he ends with this final word of peace. He says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. So Peter has began his letter, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, and now he's ended it with peace and grace as well. And this is not just a throwaway phrase, you know, sort of some Christian cliche that you just throw out at the end of letters. But what he wants them to have is peace. Why? Because if you're experiencing maligning and slander and fiery trials, what's probably severely lacking? peace. 
They're anxious. And so what he wishes for them, what he prays for them to experience is the overwhelming sense of peace from the Lord. So Peter is striking the note of grace to give them confidence, to give them comfort so that they would experience peace. Yes, you're to stand firm in the true grace of God, but I've, I've written it all down for you so you can read it yourself and hear it yourself. And that you can be confident that there is a promise that God himself, the God of all grace, the God who's called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So peace would allow them to endure and persevere until the very end. So let me just apply this for us this morning real briefly. With an election on the horizon, it's a good reminder as we've studied First Peter, that we are elect exiles, sojourners and aliens. We don't labor for one particular political party to have prominence. We, we, we don't labor to build an earthly kingdom. Rather, we're serving the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's establishing right now a new kingdom, a better kingdom. He's establishing a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. Why? So that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what's our calling in these moments? That we, our lives, whether suffering or maybe we have a short respite from suffering and maligning and slander. But our lives would declare of the hope that we have in Christ. We're to declare the excellencies of him who saved us. We exist to preach the good news of the gospel. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God. And so is that, is, is that what's communicated by our lips and by our lives in these days? Or are we mainly wringing our hands about the election? And how I'm going to vote or how others are going to vote. We know, don't we, that America, just like Babylon and just like Rome, will end up in the dustpan of history. And so we labor not for a kingdom that will perish, but that for a kingdom that will last forever. What will remain forever? The word of God, the kingdom of God, and the people of God. And so are we giving our lives to the things that will never, ever perish. Now, Peter calls us to stand firm, that we would receive his letter and believe it, that we would live according to it. These are the inspired words of the apostle Peter. So the question that we're to ask then is, is he reliable? Is he a reliable witness? Should we listen to him? I would argue, yes, I have five reasons. First, Peter had firsthand knowledge of Jesus. He was as close as anyone could be to Jesus. He smelled his breath. He walked with him all day. He saw him wake up in the morning and saw him go to bed at night. If there was any inconsistency in what Jesus said and how he lived, Peter would have sought. But when Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? What does he say? You are the Christ of God. 
And now he's written to say, these things are true. Stand firm in them. So, Peter had firsthand knowledge. Second, Peter saw Jesus' glory. Peter was there on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus shone with all of his glory. He was there and he saw Jesus crucified, heard him take his final breaths, saw him really die. And then he saw the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. He stuck his hands into his holes in his side and in his hands. And then he saw Christ ascend to heaven. If there was anything that was untrue, you know, someone stole the body and then hid it and then made up an elaborate story, Peter, a grizzled fisherman, would have called it out. But no, Peter bows down in worship because Jesus is Lord. Number three, Peter knows suffering. Peter doesn't write this letter as you know, telling secondhand knowledge. Like, I I heard that this is how you do it. You know, I I watched a YouTube video and I'm pretty sure this is how you endure. No, no, no. He's been beaten. He's shed his blood. He has the bruises to prove it. He has suffered. He knows what suffering is like. He knows what it looks like to be beaten to an inch of your life in following Jesus. And he says, oh, it's worth it. This momentary affliction pales in comparison with the eternal glory of Christ. In Acts 4, they come out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be beaten with Jesus. And so he's either crazy or he really believes that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Peter's not writing about things that he knows nothing about. No. He walked with Jesus. He suffered with Jesus. Number four, Peter knows God's protection. Peter denied Christ on the night that he was betrayed and he wept bitterly. And and Jesus actually says to Peter prior to that happening, he says, Satan asked to sift you like wheat. But I, I prayed for you so that afterwards you would strengthen your brothers. So Peter knows what it's like to have failed and yet ultimately protected by God's power. Think about Judas, who betrayed Jesus. And then what did he do when he finally realized what he had done? He killed himself. Someone would have expected Peter to do the same thing. You just denied Jesus three different times before a little servant girl, weeping bitterly. How can I stand before the disciples? I was the one that said, I I don't know about all of them, but I'll even die for you, Jesus. I made myself out to be a liar. He probably thought I'd be better off taking my own life. And yet Jesus, God in his mighty hand, protected Peter. And so Peter knows God's protection. And when he calls us to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, both of power and of protection, he does so with firsthand experience. He knows that God is true. And then fifth, Peter knows God's grace. He opens and closes his letter with grace because he knows how it tastes, the taste of the stunning grace of God. It's not some cheap or easy or shallow grace. This is the man who denied Jesus three times, swearing that he didn't even know him, And then on the beach, when he went to Jesus, seeking forgiveness and restoration. 
what did Jesus do? He lavished his grace upon him, restored him. When, so when Peter says that God will surely restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He's tasted of the first fruits of those realities. He knows what it's like to taste that God is faithful. God is true. God will protect all of his children. And so for us this morning, whatever you're facing, Peter strikes this final note. Yes, stand firm in the true grace of God, but know that what God has begun in you, he's going to bring to completion and he will lavish his grace upon you. He's called you to his eternal glory. And so there's an inheritance waiting with your name on it right now in heaven. It's sure and guaranteed. It's not a 50-50 toss-up. Am I going to persevere? No. As we heed these exhortations and warnings, we cleave to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells us that God will indeed restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us in Christ. So Peter doesn't teach wishfully, but knowledgeably, with firsthand knowledge. So this morning, let's receive his words, God's words, as true, and stand firm in the true grace of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would cause these truths to take root in our souls, so that whatever fiery trials might come or be present now or be on the horizon that we would stand firm in the true grace of God taking hold of eternal glory we pray that in Jesus name amen thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis Minnesota feel free to make copies of this message to give to others But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.